This week, a relative of early birds that looks more like a bat. To have this thing, have a feathered dinosaur with a wing membrane like a flying squirrel or something, is not something anyone would ever have expected to find. And get your chef's hat on, we're heating up the computer chips of tomorrow. It's basically cooking. You just want to put the right amount of uh, component and we time it correctly. Plus, wondering what to read this spring? From genome metaphors to a call to action on climate, we've wrapped up the best new books. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 30th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Chinese paleontologist Xing Shu has found and named a lot of dinosaur species, probably more than any other living fossil hunter. So when Shu is talking about a new discovery, and he says something like this... This is a really, really something for me, you know. I would say the most unexpected discovery I have ever made. <laughs> you sit up and take notice. He and his team have found a new dinosaur that's so strange they even put the word bizarre in the title of their paper. It's a new species that's related to some of the earliest bird-like dinosaurs, but it has one striking feature that they don't. The immaculately preserved specimen, which the team have called Yi Qi, was found in China, about 200 kilometres east of Beijing. With more, here's Jing Shu. Birds are descended from dinosaurs, uh, but, uh, you know, how exactly... The transition occurred is not very clear. Uh, so the new discovery is a new new species of these this bird-like dinosaurs. This specimen was actually discovered by a farmer in the local area, wasn't it? Exactly. Most fossils from this area were discovered by local farmers. The other dinosaurs in this group, they look reasonably similar on the surface, but there's one major difference, isn't there? After preparation, we noticed uh, uh, there are two uh, rod-like structures uh, uh, near the wrist. To be honest, uh, it took a a long time for Earth to figure out exactly those structures, what they are like. But finally, we realized it is a a structure very, very important, probably for flight. This group of species, they often have these really elongated fingers anyway. And then this new specimen has a really weird kind of wrist bone, an extra wrist bone, that looks a bit like the kind of bone that would support a bat's wing. Yeah, exactly. If you look at uh, uh, all other gliding or flying animals, more or less all the group share one feature, which is they have extra uh, structure supporting membranes. And uh, here we see this similar structure in dinosaurs. And that's really different to other dinosaurs at the base of the bird family tree. This is really unexpected, wasn't it? Yeah, this is totally unexpected. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, birds, uh, you know, birds are unique among all the animals in, in having feathery wings. But uh, this dinosaur is totally different. So this dinosaur has a totally different uh, wings from all other uh, birds and uh, their close relatives. Is this basically an early experiment in flight that failed? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I will say it's, uh, it's definitely uh, an example showing how much experimentation occurred near the transition. Close to the origin of birds, you know, there are many lineages. They, they try in different ways to get into the air, but finally only one group uh, you know, succeed, succeeded. Of course, we don't really know whether it could fly or not because all we have is a squashed dinosaur that came out of the rock. But do you, do you think it probably could fly or at least glide? 
Uh, the evidence so far we have definitely suggests uh, support to the inference that uh, it is a gliding or, or flying animal. To be honest, I just couldn't imagine uh, uh, if this uh, structure were not used for flight, what else it could function in. Uh, but of course, uh, it's open. Uh, we, I definitely welcome the other scientists uh, to do some analysis or have their opinion on this uh, structure. That was Xing Shu on the line from the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing. For some context, nature editor Henry G joined us in the studio. Henry, let's talk first about the, the group of dinosaurs that this one comes from. Uh, Yichi comes from a most peculiar group of dinosaurs called the Scansoriopterygids. Uh, don't say that if you've had too much to drink or have badly fitting false teeth. Uh, these are uh, very, very tiny dinosaurs, the size of small birds. They are feathered, but uh, they're not flyers. They have very long fingers and they've been reconstructed like eye eyes like lemurs climbing up trees and perhaps wheedling insects out of bark with their very long fingers. There have hitherto been two uh, genera of Scansoriopterygid uh, called Epidendrosaurus and uh, Epidexipteryx. So having one called Yi rather redresses the balance of um, having ever longer and more unpronounceable names. Yi certainly does trip off the tongue, um, but its name is much more straightforward than any of the rest of it, frankly. What we have here is a creature in the evolutionary soup that gave to rise to birds, but it's evolving flight in a completely different way. It's like a bird ancestor suddenly deciding to be a bat. It's, you know, really quite remarkable. And for people who think about the origin of flight a lot, I mean, how does this perhaps confuse the picture of how we believed birds and flight originated from dinosaurs? Well, the more we think about flight, the harder it gets. Uh, This creature was uh, quite an ancient creature back in the Jurassic period, around or before Archaeopteryx. Now, many of the uh, creatures on the... uh, in the bird line actually lived after that in the Cretaceous period. So what we seem to have is a lot of primitive theropods that experiment with flights in flight in various ways and then most of them give up. To have this thing, have a feathered dinosaur with a wing membrane like a flying squirrel or something is not something anyone would ever have expected to find. You compared the arrival of this paper on your desk as a little bit like the arrival of Homo floresiensis, this sort of crazy little dwarf human that lived uh, in a cave in Indonesia. Did the reviewers react in a similar way? I mean, did you think for a minute this might not be real? When one gets strange fossils from China, there is always the worry that uh, these things have been patched together by uh, dealers. Uh, This one seems to be the genuine article. In the end, these things just have to be published because the community has to see them and has to be able to judge for itself. I think this will cause a great deal of flap, uh, dare one say, Um, uh, but um, that's all to the good. That was Nature Editor Henry G and before him paleontologist Xing Shu. If you want to see what Yi Qi might have looked like, you're in luck. Adam and I have made a little video about it. It's a very cute little crazy-looking pigeon bat. Check it out at youtube.com slash naturevideochannel. Coming up, we have a pretender to the throne of graphene, another whizzy two-dimensional material. And if you're looking for brain food of the written kind, we have some book recommendations from our books and arts editor Barb Kaiser. That's coming up after the research highlights with Noah Baker. 
For the first time, astronomers have been able to observe light from an exoplanet. Observing planets orbiting distant stars is nothing new, but it's normally done by measuring the dip in starlight when a planet is silhouetted against its star. Now, researchers have subtracted the starlight and were able to detect the relatively minuscule amount of light reflected off the planet, which astronomers call 51 Pegasi b. This isn't just a technical feat, it also allows new properties of the planet to be calculated, such as its mass or reflectivity. The full paper is in Astronomy and Astrophysics. You might flirt by buying someone a drink, but grebes, they're much more impressive. They run on water for up to 20 metres at a time. No small feat, since they're the heaviest animals known to do this. And literally, no small feat. Their feet are actually large and flat, which helps keep them up. A US-based team analysed high-speed footage of wild grebes running on water and studied lab models of grebe feet. They found the birds stride very quickly, 20 steps a second, and pull their feet out of the water sideways to reduce drag. Find that paper, and a video, in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Spring is here, and that means so is Nature's Spring Books Supplement, reviewing the great reads that will keep you pinned to your chair in the April sunshine. Books and Arts editor Barb Kaiser joins me in the studio to digest some of the best. Now, first, uh, the king of climate change has written a tome uh, that's just come out, and you have a review about that. Right. Well, Nicholas Stern is probably the preeminent climate economist of our time, and he's one of the thinkers we listen to when we ponder the nitty-gritty of climate change. So anything he writes is hotly anticipated. And Why Are We Waiting?, which is his new book, is no exception. It's basically a, a call to action at the brink of the next great transformation from fossil fuels to the post-carbon economy. This is his way of pushing us along what did your reviewer, Michael Grubb, make of it? Because he's also in the climate economics field. Yeah, Michael Grubb is um, an eminent energy policy expert, and he's just written the most amazing review. He emphasizes the brilliant analyses that Stern delivers, um, but he's absolutely pulls no punches in pointing to a range of issues that Stern misses. I think he finds most problematic um, Stern's adherence to, and this is a quote, the broad sweep of economic development and global issues. In other words, Stern, who is a, a big thinker, has a tendency to, to look at all of these issues globally. What Grubb says is that local people and businesses are actually the determining factor. We can't leave jobs out of the future. And unfortunately, Stern has, more or less. And Grubb also says, well, he doesn't answer his own question. He doesn't answer the question, why are we waiting? Absolutely, yes. And that, of course, is key. Of all the big thinker books that I have been reading, this is the problem. The analyses are spot on. The on-the-ground solutions are just not happening in these books. And I think one of the nicest things in the Grubb Review is where he says in relation to this, why are we waiting is a depressing reminder of the sheer size of the elephant. All right. Well, for anyone wanting a depressing elephant, <laughs> going to review them to Nicholas Stern's book, Why Are We Waiting? Um, but if, you're, if metaphor in science is what you're after, you've got some really decent candidates for that in um, book number, well, book numbers two, three and four, in fact, so the second chunk of what we're going to talk about. 
Yeah. So this is where Nathaniel Comfort, who's a historian of genetics, um, has let rip on three books that are essentially grappling with junk DNA, this sort of state, if you like, or what we know about the genome at the moment um, is still quite mysterious in some ways, almost as mysterious as dark matter. What's Comfort's take on all of this in these three new books that deal with the junk DNA? Right. Well, he talks probably less about um, genomics than about the metaphors that we use to describe it and and um, junk DNA in particular. Uh, the result is both hard hitting and very entertaining. Um, he's he's a bit scathing actually. His point, which is not original, but he handles it originally, is that um, metaphors are important because they help to shape the way we think. So the metaphors that we use to describe DNA, he says, absolutely need an overhaul. Um, where he's talking about getting rid of these cliches. He says, that could usher in a more democratic conception of life in which all the world's a cell and all the genes and genomes merely players. I'm surprised that he hasn't emailed us to tell us off at the Nature Podcast for using metaphors like code and spelling errors. In fact, I think that's in the news chat of this actual podcast. So listeners can wait for that metaphor to come and hit them in the face. The third review we're going to talk about in the third book that's um, featured in this section is a biography of Jonas Salk. Yes, uh, this is a marvellous biography of a very divisive figure. Uh, We tend to think of him as the discoverer of this remarkable vaccine that saved so many millions of lives. This is, of course, the polio vaccine in the early 1950s. But... As uh, Tilly Tansy, who's a medical historian, shows in her review of this book, which is by Charlotte de Croes Jacobs, Salk was a, a much hated figure during his lifetime, even by the very people who he hired to staff his uh, remarkable institute, which still exists, of course. She notes how the story of Salk's great breakthrough in 1955 is one of, quote, grind, intrigue, rivalry, politics, and dirty tricks. Salk, largely because apparently of his uh, rough beginnings and the tenacity that that um, led to, was widely disliked. This is lab life-wise, a story for for scientists, I think. They're, they're really going to see a lot that they recognize in this. So fasten your seatbelts for that when it's going to be a bumpy life. Barb Kaiser, our Books and Arts Editor at Nature, thank you very much. That's not all in the Spring Books Supplement. Sticking with virology, there's a review of a book about HIV, and the section also takes in two new works about the improbable origins of life. Spoiler alert, we owe a lot to microbes. Check out all the reviews and find links to buy the books at nature.com slash nature. The device you're listening to this on is a work of art. Each microchip is built on a wafer of silicon with perfectly uniform qualities, using techniques honed by the electronics industry over decades. Silicon isn't going away anytime soon, but there are other materials that could one day do what silicon does, and even some things it can't. These new two-dimensional materials could help squeeze down electronics, making screens, solar cells, and LEDs thin and bendy. Researchers are already working with the golden boy graphene, but graphene has some attractive cousins too. They're the memorably named transition metal dichalcogenides, or TMDs. These are stable in air, only three atoms thick, and have a host of other even more exotic properties. 
But before we can shrink circuits to the atomic scale, TMDs have to be grown in large and perfectly uniform films, like silicon was before them. Something which has so far proved a challenge. Now, a team of researchers has figured out a way to make films on a scale never seen before by growing them from scratch. Reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to Ji Wung Park at Cornell University on his team's new and versatile method. Here's Ji Wung. This is not a brilliantly new material that we all of a sudden imagined and then started making. Actually, the flexi material uh, has been around for some time. It's just been that uh, people haven't thought about making it into a single layer, ultra thin crystalline form. And of course, that has been inspired by the whole excitement and the exciting research that's done in the field of graphene. So these are very thin, but they're not quite a single sheet like graphene. Tell, tell me a bit more how they compare. Any material has uh, its fundamental unit. Uh, graphene can be made to a single atom thick, you know, truly two-dimensional. And with transition metal dichalcogenized, uh, chemical bonding requires uh, you know, it to be a little bit thicker, so it is about three atoms thick. The downside of graphene is that it cannot be really truly turned off. Uh, we know that uh, logic circuits that's inside of our computer requires one and then zero on and off state. And when it's zero, we want it to be really zero. And these TMDs, they exist in both on and off states. That's right. So these sound a lot like graphene, have a lot of the wonderful properties, but perhaps some even better properties. So, so why don't we have you know, chips made of TMDs so far? What's been the challenge? One of the major hurdles uh, bringing this exciting material into uh, more technologically relevant realm is that uh, you know, one must grow these in large scale with very high quality and that was something that uh, a lot of people wanted to do and you know, also my group has worked on. So when graphene was first isolated it was actually just ripped off with a piece of sticky tape I think uh, from a piece of graphite but how have you gone about creating your 2D material? A lot of initial studies on TMD materials uh, were done in the same way. We start with a chunk of tiny crystal and then rub it against the surface and then find out just one monolayer of these films and then make devices out of it. And obviously that's not scalable and irreproducible. So what we did in our work, we used this technique called metal organic chemical vapor deposition. And that, that's a you know, big word. But basically what that means is that we take a substrate uh, we, uh, where we want to grow this film and then put it in a furnace and then fix the temperature and pressure. And then we put the right amount of gas that includes transition metal atoms and chalcogen atoms. So it's basically cooking. You just want to put the right amount of uh, component and we time it correctly. And so how does the quality of the material that you've produced compare to those samples that people were using in, in scientific studies before that were just that were ripped off with sticky tape? Uh, in the beginning, obviously, you know, it's chemically grown, so it was not as good, but after you know, a lot of optimization, the property of our chemically grown, this uh, crystalline film, uh, it has almost the same properties as uh, these small crystals. And you actually made um, transistors, didn't you? The little devices that would be in chips someday. Yes, that's right. I think we made about 8,100 uh, devices that way. 
our success rate is about 99% right now. And so this all sounds really impressive, but I'm guessing we're not just going to see two-dimensional materials in chips tomorrow. Um, what, what work still needs to be done? Uh, there should be need for this. If two-dimensional materials are doing exactly the same thing uh, as other materials do, like silicon, then there is not much of uh, uh, motivation to invest heavily in this. One thing that is very important for us to, us meaning uh, the scientists and researchers in this field, to figure out is to know uh, exactly what these materials will uh, allow us to do that cannot be done with other materials. And I think that is a very exciting and creative challenge for everyone in the field. And if you're curious about what those uses might be, and more, Lizzie's news story is at nature.com forward slash news. Even more news now, and on the line from his base in Shanghai is reporter David Sirinoski. We're going to talk about CRISPR again, and for people who might have forgotten what that acronym is all about, this is a new, very precise gene editing technique. Can you remind us of how this subject has recently come up in the news? Uh, there have been some rumours, haven't there, that it, was, that it was used in human embryos. Yes, for months now there's been uh, rumours going around that there were papers um, going to different journals uh, that talked about using CRISPR to edit the genomes of human embryos. Now, last week you found, and this is an exclusive for Nature, isn't it, a, a published paper that has to do with using CRISPR on human embryos. What exactly has been reported? Well, it is funny that you say it's an exclusive for Nature when it's a, I found a publication, and the publication probably should have been um, uh, news in and of itself, but then I, I, I was the, the first person, I think, to, to write on it. And yes, it's, uh, it's uh, a group that used non-viable embryos. So these are embryos that had um, two sperm that had entered an egg, and so basically they have three sets of chromosomes. And they can develop a little bit uh, down the stages of embryonic development, but they can't be, uh, they can't uh, provide live births. These are embryos that are from IVF clinics, and they're going to be discarded anyway. And they basically attempted to correct some genetic um, spelling errors. That's right. They targeted a gene that is mutated in thalassemia, which is a, a fatal disease, and it's very common in the part of China uh, where these researchers are, which is southern China. Um, and they just tried to see what they could do in, in repairing the gene, basically by putting in an alternate version. And some work in animals has suggested that, you know, this is pretty easy with this technique. You go in, you just change the spelling, and the gene is back to its uh, healthy state. How did they get on? They did uh, have success doing that in, uh, in, I think, about a quarter of the embryos that they looked at. But he, uh, he, he says that's still much too low to actually think. He says the efficiency is much too low to actually think about going to the clinic. You, you would have to be much closer to 100%. And another part of the problem is that they also ha saw other changes in the genome, so what they call off-target uh, mutations. So a note then of caution from this as we know, as we, so far as we know, the first attempt in human embryos to do this. Yeah, I think it, it's a note of caution, and I think that that's part uh, where the controversy comes from, because some people say, well, this clearly is so far from the clinic that we shouldn't do it because you're, you're kind of pushing it towards the clinic when, when it's so dangerous. And other people say, well, you can only find out how dangerous it is by doing this kind of research, so we really should do more of it. 
All right. So, um, David, we're going to stick with you for the rest of the news chat because, uh, as it happens, you're all over the front half of nature this week. You've been writing a feature about a troubled Japanese institute that was rocked by this stap cell scandal last year. So just as a reminder, researchers based at this institute published and then had to retract papers on a new type of stem cell. And the institute um, has been under very close scrutiny since then, hasn't it? That's right. It's the Center for Developmental Biology in, based in Riken, and they do a wide variety of developmental biology stem cell research. It's about 30, uh, I guess they had 40 research groups there, and the, the whole institute, all, all, of the, uh, all of the researchers there got uh, entangled in this. And your feature this week looks back at the, at the last year and how it's been taken apart and put back together again after the scandal. This is a really um, giant set of changes that this institute has undergone, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I mean, what, what, what interested me was that it was just so unique to see the, the, the large scale of the damage. I mean, usually when you have a fraud case or a case of scientific misconduct, you see one group or one small, small group of people um, really get taken apart. But in this case, it, it went way beyond that. And they ended up, you know, there was a, a report that called for the dis- dismantlement of the center. They're also going to have a 40% budget cut that they have to deal with. What's made it into this perfect storm then? I think there, there are a lot of things. This is a, one of the very well-funded uh, Riken institutes. So people have a much higher bar. There's also some jealousies that uh, people in the universities, and I think most of the people in the universities would even admit this, that there are jealousies that they have against the researchers who don't have to uh, don't have to teach, and they get all of their funding without applying for grants. There, there was a lot of uncritical criticism in the sense that people seem to get on a bandwagon, and no one seemed to question it. There was a lot of speculation about the motivations or ulterior motives of the of the senior management, and you know, these were scientists making the speculation. And then I talked to one who was the head of the committee, and he seemed to think that it was totally okay to to speculate about these things, even though based in that speculation, he was going to make this harsh judgment about the entire institute and basically call for it to be dismantled. This perfect storm that swirled around this institute, has the epicentre of that has really been Haruko Obokata, who was the first author on the STAP papers um, back in January of last year. I mean, does this have anything to do with, with her, the way that she was held up as this model scientist and the way she was really hounded out of that position? It definitely her presence um, had something to do with it. When she, was, when she first came on the scene at a press conference, which uh, struck a lot of the Japanese as being overly showy, but to people outside of Japan, I don't think it would have been so exceptional. But she kind of became a media darling, and she, she stuck out. And um, I don't know, I think if you, when you stick out in Japan, you can get hammered down, as, as an old saying goes. So uh, there, there, there was definitely some of that. Do you think this bows particularly badly for, for Japanese science as a whole? It could, because it, this, this center was really a place where young scientists were being given a chance, and that's not something you see uh, very often in Japan. And yet now uh, I think there's going to be more distrust of, of young scientists and there's going to be a lot more bureaucracy. One of the things that was quite surprising to me was um, the way media, the Japanese media, seemed to be a major driver in this. And when the media became very critical of, of Obokata, of the whole institute, the government and senior policy, senior administrators, felt obligated to answer to that media. David, thank you for your time. And, and both of David's pieces are at nature.com slash news.
That's all from us. Next week, will researchers ever build a computer as good as a brain? No. Well, they're trying, Kerry. More than can be said for you. Follow us on Twitter at Nature Podcast, at Nature News, and us personally at Climate Adam. And at Mini Kerry. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.